And now, Father, we come to this hour once again rejoicing in the resurrection of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have come, yes, to learn because there is so much to learn about the resurrection that perhaps most of us have not considered. And secondly, we have come to worship and adore you because you are worthy. And we praise you and we thank you for sending us your Son and for initiating this glorious divine plan to save for yourself many people who will put their whole trust in you, in Christ alone, and find ourselves having been risen from the dead because he indeed is raised. And now, Father, we have a hope to look forward to the great and final resurrection. Teach us this morning, Father, and may our minds be filled with your truth so that our hearts and souls may glorify God and worship him and praise him and delight in him and desire to fellowship with him more than we desire to before we came. And so, Father, we offer you this hour. We pray, you who are here, O Holy Spirit, come and do something in our hearts that we need to have done to make us a people who are pleasing to the Lord in all things. And these things we pray by the authority of Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, if you would turn in your Bibles once again, we continue climbing this great mountain of a text. And think with me back to the very beginning of redemptive history. It's difficult to imagine what was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. From the moment they drew their very first breath and opened their eyes, everything was perfect. Everything was perfect. No sin, no guilt, no deceit. Just absolute freedom and joy to love and be loved by one another and their God, naked and unashamed. They lived in a spectacular garden full of every sweet fruit and edible plant imaginable. There were birds, there were animals, there were fish of every kind, and they all lived in perfect harmony with one another. There was satisfying work and abundance of pleasure. There was the perfect kingdom ruled by the glorious and benevolent king, and oh, how they loved him. They loved him. And he loved them as well and made himself available to them every day. In fact, the fellowship they enjoyed with him in the cool of the day for them was the best part of being alive. But it wasn't to last. In a moment, everything changed. A single act of disobedience was all it took and who could have imagined the devastation? Who could have imagined the de devastation one little sin could cause? From the spot where Adam's forbidden fruit fell from his hand, an invisible poison began sweeping the earth with catastrophic potency. The first sign of it was the shame that suddenly filled the hearts of Adam and Eve and drove them into hiding where they fashioned for themselves a ridiculous covering of fig leaves to conceal their bodies. First shame, then covering, then blame shifting, then accusation. What happened to, their, to the relationship of this perfect couple was terrible. And worst of all, however, their fellowship with their king was ruined. In response to their sin, the Lord took one of their precious beloved animals and killed it, shed its blood, tore off its skin, and made for them coverings by his own hand. And then, for their own sake, he expelled them from the garden and sent them out into a world that was rapidly being overrun by thorns and briars. And 
where animals began attacking and eating one another, and where soon after people also began killing one another. Some made themselves rulers over authorities, over families, over tribes, cities, nations. And in the shadows where no one could see, there was also demonic forces at work provoking men to exalt themselves and to kill one another and to rebel against their God. A dark shadow had come over the earth. And because the first man's sin, because of that, mankind now lived in, a, in the hopeless clutches of sin and death. Hopeless. Without God in this world. But God. God had a plan. And this, after all, was his world. And he loved it. These, after all, were his people. And he loved them. How did he love them? He loved them in this manner. He sent his son, the only one. He gave his son to reverse the curse and to set men free. Since the devastation was caused by the actions of a man, it could only be reversed by the actions of a man. And so... Because he is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions, God became a man. Isn't that awesome? God became a man. Living for 33 years, he did what Adam failed to do. He obeyed God perfectly. He obeyed God perfectly in every moment, every day, every circumstance, no matter what it was, absolute, total perfection. He was the one righteous man. He was what Adam should have been and was not. Like Adam, he too was tempted. In fact, we know that he was tempted in every way as we are. He was tempted. How were you tempted this week? How were you tempted this week? He was tempted in every way as we are, yet he never sinned. His was a life marked by perfect righteousness. He had the perfect righteousness that man needed to have fellowship with God restored. And then, at the age of 33, he was seized upon like an animal and killed to provide a covering for his people. This was no accidental death. It was not something that God, that caught God off guard. It was by the design of God himself who sent his only son on a mission to pay for the sins of the world and provide the perfect righteousness they desperately needed and couldn't gain. It was designed by God and it was designed by God in order to save his people. Why did the sinless son, son of God die a bloody death on a cruel Roman cross? This is why. He did it to reverse the curse, to restore the kingdom, and set men free. He wanted man to be free. It was the only way that man could ever have restored fellowship with one another and with their God. And because it was, because it was Jesus who came, because it was the very Son of God himself, because we're talking about all of humanity, death was required, and it was a death that had to be sufficient for all of mankind. And so it was Jesus. He came on this mission. He did exactly what he was supposed to do. 
For 33 years, he fulfilled all righteousness so that there would be human righteousness to credit to our account. And then he suffered, bled, and died to pay the penalty for sins that he never committed so that that payment could be placed on our account. Was his mission a great success? You bet it was. How do we know? We know because once they put him in the grave and thought it was over, it wasn't over. On the third day, he rose again. We know his mission was a success because it was confirmed on the third day by an empty tomb and two angels who sat there saying, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen just as he said. And then over the next 40 days, he appeared to many, to the women at the tomb, to Peter, to the 12. He walked with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Oh, I wish I had been there. To hear Jesus unpack the Old Testament and show the Christ throughout the entire Old Testament. It was the first expository sermon after the resurrection. He ate breakfast on the shore of Galilee with his fishermen. He invited Thomas to touch his nail-scarred body and then ascended into heaven in broad daylight before the eyes of some 500 people. More than that, he appeared to Stephen the moment he was being stoned to death and then finally to Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul on his way to Damascus. Oh, yes, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And just as he said, but the point of this passage this morning is that the resurrection of God's son is not the end of the story. We tend to think about our salvation in this way. Jesus came, he died, he rose again, I have received him. Now we just live out this life and when we die we go to heaven. And all of that's true, but oh, there's so much more. There is so much more that Christ's resurrection accomplished. God's people still live in a sin-cursed world. And if the curse is going to be fully reversed and the kingdom completely restored, then there is much work left to be done. Christ's resurrection was only the beginning. How does it proceed from here? How does God's plan for redemptive history proceed from here? That's a great question, and this is exactly the question that Paul answers next. So, if you are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, pick up verse 20 with me. Let's stand together and follow along with me, standing in reverence to God's word. Beginning with verse 20, just follow along as I read. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, and after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then, the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Beloved, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is far more significant to God's plan of redemption than we ever imagined. Yes, as believers, we understand that Christ's resurrection secured our salvation. And because Jesus rose again from the dead, believers now can be, cannot be held in the clutches of death anymore. And one day we too will be set free to the joy of eternal life. But the ramifications of Christ's resurrection 
go far beyond the salvation of the individual. The resurrection was not just about you. It was not a man-centered resurrection. It was a God-centered resurrection from which we reap the eternal benefits. It's not all about you. It's not all just about your personal relationship with Jesus. But on the other hand, I hope that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. But the resurrection was not only about you and Jesus. The ramifications of his resurrection are staggering. God has far greater purposes in mind. And everything is moving along just as he planned. And let's consider the sequence of events God has on the schedule of redemption as he moves things forward to the final restoration. If you're taking notes, number one, we'll look at the immediate effects of the resurrection. The immediate effects of the resurrection. Here's what happened first, verses 20 through 22. But now Christ has been raised. You remember from back in verse 12, Paul is addressing the false teaching that had come into the church that there is no such thing as the resurrection from the dead. And he is dismantling that piece by piece. And last week we looked at what if there is no resurrection of the dead? We lose this, we lose that, we lose this, we lose that. We lose everything in Christianity. And now he starts this next session by, by saying this, but Christ has been risen from the dead. He has been raised. And so all of the objections to the contrary are, are irrelevant. All the suggestions associated with the possibility that maybe there is no such thing as a resurrection, all of that is a moot point. He has, in fact, been raised from the dead. And so Paul writes, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now in these verses, Paul reveals how Christ's resurrection applies to us. His resurrection is not just a historical event. It is not just a theological truth. It's something that's going to have a profound effect on the future of all who believe, without exception. And to make his point, Paul draws, by way of illustration, from an Old Testament feast. Now, not many of us are very familiar with the Old Testament feasts. This one is really significant. The Feast of Firstfruits, at least to understanding the resurrection. The Feast of Firstfruits took place at the beginning of the barley har harvest. And here's what happened. On the day of Passover... So right away, now we're talking about two feasts. There's actually a third going on right at the same time. It's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You got Passover, Unleavened Bread. And then right in the middle of that, or right at the beginning of that, you also have this barley feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And so on the day of Passover, a farmer would go out into his barley field before the beginning of the harvest. He would cut a sheaf of grain, a bundle of grain, he would tie it up into a sheaf, and he would just leave it in the field to dry overnight into the next day. And on the next day, which was the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the sheaf was taken and prepared for the offering, which would occur on the third day. On the third day, then, the grain from the sheaf would be taken from the home, to the temple where it would be given to the priest. And the priest would take the grain and he would do two offerings with it. He would do the heave offering. He would heave it up before the Lord, literally. And he would wave it. It's called the wave offering. He'd wave it before the Lord. There wasn't any burning. There wasn't, any, um, there wasn't anything else about it. They just held it up before the Lord and they waved it before him. You say, what's the significance of that? The significance of that is this. Whenever a farmer took a sheaf of grain, barley, to the temple and held it up before the Lord shortly before harvest, what he was saying was something like this, Lord, by offering you this sample of grain, 
from my field. I give you thanks and praise from the depths of my heart for the great harvest that will surely soon follow. I got a whole field full of this stuff. And soon I'm going to harvest it. And God, it's all because of you. And so I give you the first of it. While it's still green, I give you the first of it. It is yours. All of the harvest is yours. And I thank you. The first fruits were a promise that the great harvest was yet to come. And it would come from God. Now, that's an interesting bit of history, but here's the amazing thing. In the mystery of God's perfectly timed providence, Jesus was killed on Passover, the feast of Passover, and guess when he was raised? On the third day, which was the feast of first fruits. And why? Why was he raised on that day? Well, Paul seizes upon this fact and teaches us this, that just as that first sheaf of grain served as a promise of the harvest to come, so the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of a great harvest of resurrected saints to come. The first fruits had been offered, but the great harvest was yet to come. Or should I say, the great harvest was soon to come. It would not be long. It was already in the grain. It would only be a few days or weeks before the harvest was complete. Now consider the theology behind this. Verses 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, and the operative word there is man, since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died. And so also in Christ all will be made alive. So here's the question. Where did death come from? Where did death come from? Answer, it came by human means. It came through man. By a man, Paul says, came death. Man was the channel of conveying death to his kind. Therefore, if the curse of death was to be reversed, the process needed to come through the same channel. This is why God had to bring salvation to man by means of a man, a perfect man, a man who was, in fact, God in human flesh, who could serve as man's new representative. Romans 5 talks about this in detail. Adam was man's first representative, but he failed to represent us well and plunged us all into sin. The second Adam, however, has come. Adam, by the way, his name means man. The second Adam has come, and he has fulfilled all righteousness and done for us what the first Adam could not do. This is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4, Listen to this, Galatians 4, 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Think about that. At just the right time. At just the right time. Everything in God's plan is precisely timed. Think about it. He had to rise again on a very specific day. He had to rise again on the day of first fruits. And he also had to die on the day of Passover. It was, I mean, the, the timing for all of the feasts was, in, was intricate, integrately, is that a word? It's very carefully planned. Everything had to be laid out exactly right. And then he had, therefore, to be born 
at a specific time in history, at a moment, on a day. It was all a very clear picture of God's absolute sovereignty over history. Nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by accident. God is in control of every moment. As R.C. Sproul says, if there is one maverick molecule in the universe, God is not sovereign. But he is and has proved it again and again and again. If you take the time to to just trace out the battle between Satan and the promised Christ from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22. It is amazing. It's an amazing epic drama. Because at every point, Satan tries to kill the Christ. He tries to kill every significant person in the line of Christ leading up to his birth. And then after he survived and was born, Revelation is has very graphic pictures of that whole thing. And the woman with the child being born and the dragon ready to eat it, but the, the child is saved. It's all a picture of this de- grand design that God had from the very beginning and how Satan then goes after him, after him, after him. And then after his people, after his church, God had everything perfectly timed. He is sovereign over redemptive history. And so at the fullness of time, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, how? Born of a woman. Why? Because the only one who could reverse the curse would be a man. It had to be a man, but it couldn't be any man. It had to be a man who was also God. And he was born under the law. Why under the law? Because it was the law that was condemning them. He had to fulfill the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We who have been alienated and estranged from our king can now be brought back into fellowship. What kind of fellowship? The kind of fellowship that a perfect father has with his sinful children. A relationship that is perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfect in every way. You see, Adam's personal life had a profound effect upon everyone who was joined to him. And in the same way, Paul argues, Christ's personal life had a profound effect upon everyone who was joined to him. Now look at the way the text is worded here. He says, Verse, starting with verse 21, for since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also, watch these two words, in Christ. In Christ. Don't let that phrase slip by you. As if Paul has any unnecessary wasted words here. Read the book of Ephesians, especially chapter 1 where Paul unpacks this doctrine of us being in Christ. And Colossians, Christ in us. Ephesians, we are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are now one with Christ. All of these promises apply to those who are in Christ. It is an exclusive promise. It is only for those who are in Christ, by grace, through faith. It's all for us. How did it affect us? How did Christ's personal life of perfect righteousness and perfect sacrifice affect us and his resurrection, and especially the resurrection? Here's how. It affected us by taking away the sting of death. It affects us by taking away the sting of death. That's what the resurrection is about for us. Because Christ is risen, all who are joined to him, all who are in Christ, are raised. You are already raised. Let me prove it to you. We're studying Colossians chapter 1, but turn with me to Colossians. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. 
General Electric Power Company, right? Is that how you find your way around? <laughs> Watch this. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Paul says, If you have died with Christ, or since you have died with Christ, to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit to the decrees of such? Now look at chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you or since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You see, in Paul's theology, if you know Christ, if you are in Christ, you have died with him and you have been raised with him. So in a very real spiritual sense, your resurrection has already happened. In a spiritual way, your resurrection has happened. And because that has happened, even though you're still a sinner, even though you live in a sinful world with other sinful people who drive you crazy, even though all of that is still true, death no longer has its sting. Death no longer has its sting. We don't have to be bound. We don't have to be ruled by fear of death anymore. I tell you, I've visited some people in the hospital over the years, the pastor, and there are occasions where I have the opportunity to go in and visit one of our senior saints, usually a woman who's been suffering for years and years and years. And when I walk in, after we do the initial greetings, all I hear about is love for Christ, love for his word, love for his church, and a desire to go home, and a promise to be faithful while she's still here. I love going to visit people like that. I love visiting Ruth Brown, who's in that state right now. She loves the Lord. She's been a part of this church long, longer than any of y'all, almost. And she's now in a home and suffering and all she wants to do. She's not afraid of death. She can't wait for it. Why? Because death no longer has sting. It's dying that's the problem. Death is not something to fear anymore. And so we have texts like this, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Therefore, notice how all of this is connected. Christ having to become a man to re to remove the curse of sin, which is bound up in death, to set us free. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that is, flesh and blood, that through death, that is, through Jesus' crucifixion, his death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Afraid of death. And fear of death will drive you in one of two directions. It will either drive you to do whatever you can to get all the pleasure that you can find so as to anesthetize the nagging sense of one day I'm going to die, and that's the most awful thing I could think of. To think of it makes me quiver. To think of it fills me with fear. And so drugs, alcohol, sex, money, any of the pleasures of this life, they're ruled by those things because, ultimately because, you fear death. Or on the other side of it, fear of death drives you to stay healthy and so that you are ruled by this passion to stay healthy at all costs, at all costs. Now, I believe that we were designed with a desire to stay healthy. I don't want to get sick. And we pray for those who are sick. We want them to get well. They want to get well. That's fine. That's wonderful. But does it rule you? Is it all you think about? You've got to get well. You've got to stay healthy. You've got to stay well. Or is simply 
a love for pleasing the Lord Jesus Christ in every sphere of your life, every word, every action, so that Christ is exalted in your body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is what? Gain. Revelation 1.18, here's what Jesus says in the end. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. In other words, I'm in charge now of death. Satan, no longer in charge. I've taken the keys. I choose to lock up whom I choose to lock up. I choose to set free whom I will set free. I am sovereign over death. Beloved, when you were born again, it was as if you died with Christ and rose again to new life to be forever set free. You no longer have to look forward to the prospect of death because Christ died in your place. You never read the little booklet or article by John Piper called Don't Waste Your Cancer. Worth reading. Just take the word cancer and insert anything. Don't waste your flu. Don't waste your surgery. Don't waste your, you know, problem with your family members or the death of a loved one. Don't waste it. It's an opportunity. You are not ruled by death anymore. When you were born again, you died with Christ and you were raised to new life. And you, you no longer have to look forward to the prospect of death because Christ died in your place. And now his promise to you is this. Those who live and believe in me will what? Never die. They never die. They never die. If you're a child of God by faith, then you have already experienced spiritual resurrection. The curse of death has already been removed. For those who are in Christ, death has been defanged. And all death now does to or for the believer is it serves as a doorway into the presence of the Lord. That's all it is. It is not something that should rule us. It is something that we should hope for and look forward to. Not accelerate. We are not permitted to accelerate it. But oh, we can look forward to it and praise God for his promises of it. This was the immediate effect of Christ's resurrection, but there's so much more to come. Complete restoration didn't happen all at once when Jesus rose again. It would be brought about by a sequence of events that would occur one after another over a long period of time in our estimation. And Paul wants us now to consider this. Number two, the overall order of the resurrection. The overall order of the resurrection. Watch this, verse 23. But each, he's talking about resurrection, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and after that, those who are in Christ at his coming. So, but each in his own order. The word order here, tagma, refers to class or division. It was used as a military term in the day. And talk about people who held different ranks, or groups of people who held different ranks in the military. Tagma. And here's what he's saying. There is an order of rank in the resurrection. Yes, there are different levels of the resurrection, but there has to be order. The highest in rank is resurrected first. And the highest in rank is the Lord Jesus. Now, those of you who are memorizing Colossians 1, 15 through 20 have already learned about this because you've been watching the videos, and this is what you've learned. Every time you see the word firstborn in that passage, prototokos, it means the highest ranking one. He is the firstborn of all creation, and he is the firstborn from the dead. He is the highest in rank. He comes first. Think of the most glorious thing in all of creation. 
Jesus holds a higher rank than that, than the sun, than the moon, than the cosmos, even than Satan, the angel of light, Lucifer. He is the highest ranking one in the universe. And of those who have been raised from the dead, a lot of people have been raised from the dead, historically. I mean, not a lot, but several. Not just Christ, not just Lazarus, but some in the Old Testament as well, and some people that Jesus raised from the dead as well. Jesus, however, is the firstborn from the dead. He is the highest ranking one. And by the way, all of those other people who were raised from the dead had to die again. Not Jesus. Not Jesus. And so here are the two ranks. Think of an army, military, it's a military term. Think of an army. You have the captain of the guard or captain of the soldiers. He's the highest ranking one. He raised first. And then then all of his soldiers, his army... Now sleeping, because he says, of those who are asleep, right? His army, who are now appropriately, you get the idea, it's nighttime. It's not time for battle. But it's sleeping. They're sleeping. But they will soon rise when the trumpet blasts. And they will join their captain in full array. The captain was resurrected in 33 A.D., He was the firstborn from the dead. But someday the trumpet will sound and the army under the rule of the captain will be raised to join him. This is how Paul says it, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Notice order. Christ, then the dead, verse 17, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. And so even among the soldiers, there is rank. Christ, the first fruits. His sleeping army to awake, second in rank. And then those of us who are alive, I pray that we are they. We will rise next. It's glorious to view all of this. This, beloved, is the great harvest of souls of which the resurrection of Christ was merely the first fruits. And there remains in God's plan another resurrection that will, that will bring to life not just one man, but all of the redeemed. You see, salvation is not only about our sins being forgiven in this life. No, no. The Lord has planned so much more for his people. He's restoring all things to their original glory. He is rolling back what Adam lost. And he has promised to do it so that we will live in hope while we await that glorious day. That's why he tells us these things so that we will live in hope, hope producing purity and faithfulness along the way. Listen to this. If you have time today, I hope you'll have time just to rest, maybe to read the Word today. Read 1 Peter, especially chapter 1. This is what Paul, Peter says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's our living hope. It's a living hope. And do you remember who Peter wrote to? He wrote to a persecuted church. He wrote to suffering believers Beloved, you're going to be ministering to people who are suffering. And you may be ministering to people who are suffering right now. People are suffering all around us. They need hope. They need hope. Where are they going to get that hope? Empty promises from psychology? No. Empty health, wealth stuff? Healing? 
No. Oh, God might heal. He might. In answer to prayer. He might not. For his glory. And for the joy of his people. What do they need? They need to be reminded of the resurrection. The resurrection that has produced for us a hope of glory. The resurrection, not just Christ's resurrections. Christ's resurrection was the first fruits, but rather the coming resurrection, the great harvest by which we will all be saved. Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. Do you hear it? It's not just your spirit that's saved. Do you realize that your salvation has been fully purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ? And you have been fully forgiven because of the righteousness and death Resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of that is true. And yet, your salvation is not complete. You can't add anything to it, but he will. Because while it's true that your spirit has been raised to life, your body has not. And all God's older people said, <laughs> amen. You feeling the aches and pains? I did a little bit of work yesterday putting bunk beds together for my kids, and I just feel like, oh, my word, what happened to me? Did I get hit by something yesterday? Listen, I long, my body longs for the resurrection. My body longs for the resurrection. My parents are unable to be here today because of illness again. They long for the resurrection. And so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ do. Beloved, this is given to us for our hope. It's given to us to remind us to keep going. Your rest is coming. Rest is coming. Keep going. A week or so ago, Shana was being checked out for some potential heart issues. My daughter, in case you don't know. Hi, Shana. I asked her permission. <laughs> and they put her on a treadmill with all those electrodes and everything. And, uh, and they told her, now, you're going to get on here. You're going to walk for a little bit. Just hold on to the deal little handle, and about every uh, two and a half, three minutes, um, it's, it's going to kick up. It's going to go faster, and the it, front, front end is going to lift up a little bit, so it's going to be harder. And so I'll give you a 15-second warning every time, and she did, the nurse did. And so she started, and she's walking. She's taking a little day in the park. You need to know my, my kids are swimmers. They swim two hours a night, and they're in great shape. So here she is on this thing, and uh, she's going, and it gets a little harder, a little higher, a little faster, a little higher, a little faster. A little she's in a full run by about six minutes. At eight minutes, she's almost sprinting. And the doctor comes in and says, Shana, how do you feel? And she says, I'm a little tired. And we're like, well, that's not exactly what he's asking. You know, is your heart feeling okay? Or are you feeling faint? I'm just a little tired. And sure enough, it went up to 10 minutes. It got to 10 and a half minutes. And the doctor looked at his nurse and said, have we ever had anybody who's come in here and put this thing over 10 minutes? She's running and running, and you can see it on her face. She just wanted some rest. And the doctor's saying, no, your rest is coming. And I picture myself on that treadmill sometimes. The rest is coming. It's time to run. It's time to run as hard after God as you can possibly run. It's time to push the limits of your heart in adoration to him while you have time because time is short. We don't have much time to run. Two of the favorite phrases of life in the New Testament, walk and run, walk and run. Isaiah 41 talks about walking and not becoming weary, and running, and not getting tired. Why? Because our hope is in the Lord, who gives us grace to mount up with wings as eagles, to run and not be weary, to walk and not faint. Walk and run. How long? How long? Until your rest comes. It's coming. It's coming. There are some times when I'm counseling people, and they're in such a difficult situation because sin, perhaps sometimes their own or those who, are, who they know have sinned against them, 
and relationships have been shattered and things are a mess and it's all broken and you can't be put back together. And so we give them encouragement in the scriptures. We tell them what God calls them to do, how to bring the word of God to bear on their life at that moment, how to respond to those people. And then somewhere along the way, we remind them, just remember, this may not all be fixed in this life, but it won't last long. You only have to make it till your rest comes. You only have to make it until the resurrection. The first fruits happens right before harvest. It won't be long. The harvest is coming. Be faithful. Keep running. Keep walking. Keep praising. That's why God tells us these things. And the Christians in the first century had a term that reminded them of these promises. You know what it was? Maranatha. Maranatha. Which is them simply praying, Lord Jesus, come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Why? Because they felt the weight of living in a sinful world. And they knew the promise of resurrection. Beloved, if this were the only result of resurrection, it would be more than enough. It would be more than enough. But there's more. We've seen the immediate effects of resurrection, the, over, the overriding order of resurrection, and now finally, the final goal of resurrection. Verses 24 through 28. Watch now. Then comes the end. Then comes the end. We have Christ's resurrection. We have the believer's resurrection. And then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. After the saints are resurrected, then comes the end. The word end here is a significant word. It is telos, meaning conclusion or completion of a goal. You remember when Jesus died? The very last words he said, it is finished. And in the, the original, it is tetelestai. The word here for end is telos. Jesus said on the cross, tetelestai. It's the, same, it's the same root word, completed, finished, paid in full. It is done. And indeed it was. His work of redemption and paying for our sin and fulfilling all righteousness was done. But one day, God will bring about the completion, the telos of his plan, the full plan for redemptive history. It will be the conclusion of the drama of sin and redemption in which the Adam and the Christ have played out their respective parts, and then it will really be the end. On that day, Christ will hand over the kingdom to his Father. But before that can happen, he's got to roll it all back. Everything that came out of Adam's sin has to be rolled back. And so he must first abolish all rule and authority and power on the earth and take his rightful seat as sovereign king over all. The term abolish here, talking about abolishing Rule and authority? Abolish? Here's what abolish means. In case it, it's not intuitive, I looked it up in the Greek. Here it is. To put an end to, to stop, to invalidate, to nullify, to cancel, to destroy, to replace. Any questions? You're fired. That's what it means. It pretty much paints a clear picture, doesn't it? When the king comes, all other ruling parties are fired. You're done. Your term is up. We've got other plans for you. Rule, authority, and power. The terms are used respectively in the New Testament to refer to human authority, Romans 13, and to demonic powers in Ephesians 1. In this context, he apparently has in mind the destruction of all powers that are raised against the kingdom of Christ, whether they are human or supernatural. That is to say, Satan and his minions are living on borrowed time. And they know it. Remember when Jesus met the demoniac? 
And the legion of demons said to him, Why have you come to send us to the abyss before our time? And Jesus sent them into the, the herd of pigs, and they ran down the hill and did a swine dive and committed suicide. <laughs> oh, boy. I've always wanted to say that. I'm not sure why. <laughs> so every human and every spiritual authority has to be rolled back. And notice that this process seems to indicate that Christ is going to take quite a time to accomplish it. Verse 25. He says, for he must reign until, until. The until is what piques my interest. Until. What do you mean until? I mean, is this going to take a while? Apparently. I mean, understand, Jesus is credited with creating all things. Colossians, John 1, Hebrews 1. He's the creator. He speaks and it comes into being. Let there be the three most powerful words in the universe when they come from his mouth. Why doesn't he just come back and say, let there be? And then all of them are gone. They all disappear. But it's not that way. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under their feet. This is what Psalm 110 was about. We read this a little while ago. God the Father giving God the Son a kingdom. And here Paul is telling us when it's done, God the Son will give it back to the Father. He will roll it all back. He's going to roll it all back. And I ha can't help but make a connection here between this passage and Revelation 20, where the Lord revealed to the Apostle John that one day the dragon, that is Satan, will be captured and bound for a thousand years during which time Christ will rule on earth. The resurrection of the saints happened immediately previous to Christ setting up his kingdom on earth, and we will reign with Christ for a thousand years, or half the time it has taken so far from the resurrection until now. For a millennium, we will reign with Christ, and we will be there watching him and in some regard, helping him subdue every rule and authority on earth. And then when all of those enemies are cast aside, one final enemy will be dealt with, verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Death. Death will have no more power. It will be eradicated. It will be destroyed. It will be invalidated, nullified, canceled, replaced by life. And the Son of God will hand over the kingdom to his Father, and all things will be restored and made new. Turn with me just briefly, and I know our time is about up. Very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. And just follow along with me as I read. Just let this text fill you with wonder. John writes, Then he, that is Christ, showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river, there is this tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. Oh, beloved, verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. He will have rolled the whole thing back to the garden. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, that's us, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and there will no longer be any night 
And they will have no need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and forever. You say, you understand all the dynamics that are happening there? No, I don't. I mean, there is glory and mystery here that's far beyond us, but enough for us to fall on our faces before God and say, oh God, you are good, you are good, and your mercies endure forever. God, help me be faithful. God, help me conquer sin in my life. God, help me to be faithful in leading other people to Christ. Help me to be faithful to lead my family. Help me to be, to be a joyful worshiper of yours all the day of my life until I walk through that final door and see you face to face. Help me not fear death. Help me not to love the pleasures in this life so as to make them an idol. When death is abolished, it will all be over and the son will then hand it over to the father. You see that last phrase back in 1 Corinthians 15, or the last section, verse 27. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says, all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. That is, when we talk about the things that Jesus is going to subject under him, he's not speaking of the Father. Paul says that's evident, isn't it? When all things are subjective to in verse 28, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. That Colossians passage, remember that? At the very end, the Father is reconciling all things to himself having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He's reconciling. He's settling all accounts. God the Father is doing it through God the Son. And when all accounts are settled and the redeemed are with their master forever and the damned are in their place with their master, then the Son will take the kingdom and hand it back to the Father and say, Father, it is yours. And the Father will say to the Son, rule it for me, Son. Rule it for me. And he will reign as king forever and ever on the throne of David. The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. Amazing, amazing. You see, beloved, the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of all that comes after. God intends for Christ to be King of kings and Lord of lords, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He will roll it all back to the perfection of the garden. But how would this king even have a kingdom how would this, this king have a people if he did not, first of all, conquer death? He would have no one to rule. He would be a king without a kingdom, a king without subjects, and that could never be. And so the father sent his son to save. And Jesus said before he died, Lord, Father, all that you have given me, I've not lost a single one. We had to be rescued from the power of sin and death. Only then could all things be restored and made new. Only then could we reign and regain perfect unity with one another and perfect fellowship with God. Beloved, do you see a little better how great the Father's love is for us? that he would go through all of this trouble to redeem us and to restore us to the glory we were created to enjoy? Do you see the magnificent mercy of God the Father that he would send his son who lived in subjection to the Father willingly to accomplish this, yes, for the glory of the Father, but for our good? 
Or let me make it more personal. Have you struggled against temptation and sin this week? I have. Beloved, the the message here is don't lose heart. You're always going to struggle with temptation in this life. If you're a child of God, however, sin's days are numbered. Satan's days are numbered. Your struggle against the flesh will not last forever. Someday you will hear the king say these words, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from when? Before the foundation of the world. I've been planning this all along. It's time. Come into the joy of your maker. Until that day, beloved, oh, let us rejoice in the glory of Christ's resurrection. Let us bask in the reality that though we often sin against our Lord, he does not count our sins against us, and he will raise us on the last day. He understands how difficult it is to live in a sinful world. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. And one day he will surely and infallibly fulfill his promise to rescue all of us from all the influences of sin, both from within and from without. And then he will restore us to perfect, unhindered, shameless, joyful fellowship with him forever, which will be the best part of being alive. Until then, may we be found faithful. Faithful to keep short accounts of sin. Faithful to live in the hope of eternity with Christ. Faithful to take risks for the gospel. To faithfully worship this glorious God whose grace toward us is infinitely greater than we have ever dreamed. Let's pray. Father, you are you're so good to us. We hardly have even the capacity to imagine, even when it's clearly written on the pages of Scripture, how good you are to us. And so, Father, we have come once again to hear of your greatness and your glory. And we praise you, Father, that you've done it all to glorify yourself, to magnify your Son, and because you love us. And, oh, Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for it all. In the name of our Savior, Jesus.